Heavenly Father, thank you for today, for providing my every need and giving me the strength to make it through. I pray that I listen for your voice today and cast all my worries on you. Help me to see others through your eyes and notice the opportunities you have for me. Let me love others as you do, forgive and let be. Please take away the anxiety and stress that I may trust and rely on you and rest. In every moment of every day, may I open my heart to you and pray, asking you not only to meet my needs, but how I'll serve as the Spirit intercedes. Thank you for being with me, even in my darkest days, and forgiving me for wronging you in so many ways. Help me to pray, for better or worse, but most importantly, to always pray first. Well, good morning and uh, happy Palm Sunday to you. Um, today I will not be giving a traditional Palm Sunday message, and for some of you that throws off your, your whole yearly calendar. Um, so for those of you who are like, uh, this messes with my church world, let me just quote a scripture for you this morning before we get started. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest. All right, now, what I want to do today is I want to finish up our Pray First series. This is the seventh week in that, and as we finish up, as we start this sermon but finish up the series, I want to invite you to stand uh, with me right now, if you would, and invite you to join me if you know uh, the maybe most recited, most memorized, most quoted prayer of all time. If you don't know it, that's fine. You can stand and just listen. That's wonderful. Um, and just to make sure that we're all on the same page, we're going to go with trespasses as opposed to debts. So if you would like to say this with me, uh, that would be great. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. You may be seated. That's referred to as the Lord's Prayer, and my guess is most often when people put together the words Jesus in prayer, that's probably the first thought that comes to their mind, our Father, the Lord's Prayer. In fact, it may not just be the first thought that comes to their mind, it may be the only thought that comes to their mind that that's the only prayer that Jesus ever prayed, that's the prayer that he prayed all the time, but that prayer does not stand alone. In fact, with Jesus in prayer, he talked a lot about prayer, he explained explained about prayer. He instructed about prayer. He modeled prayer. And I would say if there's anyone who has ever understood prayer completely, it would be Jesus. He would understand the obvious simplicity of prayer as well as the mysterious complexities of prayer that we may never fully understand until we're on the other side of eternity. If there was ever an authority on prayer, it would have been Jesus. And if it was possible, and I'm not saying it is, but if it was possible that anyone could live a successful God-honoring life without praying, I think there's only one person that could have pulled that off. That would have been Jesus. But what's interesting is that it's not just prayer that he talks about and teaches about, but it was prayer that he engaged in. In, in Hebrews chapter 5, verse 7, it says, During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with loud cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And some of you, knowing this season and knowing the New Testament, are probably thinking, but that's in the Garden of Gethsemane. Yes, it was, but it also talks about during the days of Jesus' life here on earth. And 17 times in the New Testament, Jesus is referred to as not just talking about praying, but praying himself. And what I would like for us to do today is not to look at the things that Jesus taught about prayer, not to look at his parables on prayer, not to necessarily even look at, at the Lord's Prayer or, or the High Priestly Prayer, which I've done series on both of those. But I would like for us to look at this, the days of Jesus' earth. And what I would like for us to do today is to look at Jesus, Jesus the prayer. 
All throughout this series, we've been focusing on men and women who are prayers, to look at their prayer life, to be inspired by that. And as we conclude this series, I think it's a good place to land the authority on prayer, that we look to Jesus, our Lord and Savior, but look to his life as a prayer and to see how ubiquitous prayer was throughout the days of his life. Now, with that said, today's sermon is different than any sermon I think I've ever preached before. In that, and most of you are aware, a month ago, I was in Israel with 46 others uh, from, from Cornwall. One of those uh, individuals was Chris Waltner, who does all of our video and all of our artwork. And because he was along, we were able to pre-record portions of this message on site in Israel. I thought, if we're going to talk about Jesus' prayer life, why not do it in Israel? And so there's four video segments uh, that we're going to be looking at as we look at this life of prayer in Jesus' life. With that, the very first segment is a little bit interactive, so I expect participation, okay? Okay, the first video section is a little bit interactive, so I expect participation, okay? Okay, good. All right, so let's learn from the life of Jesus, the prayer. I thought to start off our journey, we would be here at the Western Wall in Jerusalem. To understand Jesus as a prayer and to understand his prayer life, you have to understand the culture that he was raised in, the culture that he came from. I think so often we think of Jesus as, a, as an American evangelical Christian, but Jesus was Jewish. And for the Jewish people, their commitment, their connection with God was everything. It was everything for them individually, as a family, and as a nation. It was their identity. It was their purpose. They were God's people. He would be their God and they would be his people. And they were very devout, very, very committed to this relationship with their heavenly father, with God, with Yahweh. Even to this day, as you see behind me and as we'll talk about, they're very committed to different aspects of their faith and how they live that out. One of the things you may see is uh, even little boys or men wearing a yarmulke. I've got one on here. It's to, to cover the head. The idea is that there ought to be separation between the creator and the creation, the holy and the human, that there ought to be something that separates us from God. Another thing that you'll see with some uh, members of the Jewish faith is that their sideburns will be long, these curls. And this comes again out of the scripture, out of Leviticus 19, where it says that you're not to trim the edges of your beard. You know, one of the things that would be very important for a Jewish boy, actually an entire Jewish family, is to start every single day and to end every single day with a prayer, a specific prayer. It's called the Shema. Why don't you say that? Say Shema. The Shema is found in Deuteronomy chapter 6, and it says this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. This was a prayer that was said every morning. This was a prayer that would be the first thing that a young child would say. It would be uh, ingrained in their mind from their earliest days. They would hear it over and over again because this is who they were, people of God. It goes on, it says, these commandments that I give you today are to be upon your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. These verses they took very literally, and some still do today. There's what was referred to as the phylactery or the teflon. It would be a box that they would put on their hand and wrap a cord around their arm, a box that they would wear on their forehead with the Shema in it, with scriptures in it, and they would bind them on their foreheads and on their hands. Not only that, but where it says, write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. On the right-hand side of any Jewish home, any Jewish hotel, any Jewish shop, as you enter into a door, there's a little box. It's called a mezuzah. And in that box is the scripture out of Deuteronomy 6, that you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. In addition to that, very often you'll see one that is wearing a prayer shawl. And the prayer shawl is the talit. Say that, talit, talit. And from that, are these tassels referred to as the, the zitzit, the zitzit, say zitzit. Now from that, they get that from Numbers chapter 15, where it says, the Lord said to Moses, speak to the Israelites and say to them, throughout the generations to come, you are to make tassels on the corners of your garments with a blue cord on each tassel. You will have these tassels to look at 
And so you will remember all the commands of the Lord, that you may obey them and not prostitute yourselves by going after the lusts of your own eyes and your hearts. You see, this is the culture that Jesus was raised in. So prayer was very much a part of his, of his life, of his family, of his nation. And these practices are still being practiced to this day. No doubt, one of the first prayers that Jesus ever prayed was the Shema. And every morning and every night, he would pray that. Now, Joseph and Mary were very devout Jewish people, followers of, of, of Yahweh. It says about Joseph that he was a righteous man. And of Mary, it says she was highly favored of the Lord. They would have taken very seriously these practices in their homes. And not only that, every single year, they would have made the trek, the journey to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. Remember, Jesus didn't live in Jerusalem. He was born in Bethlehem. He was raised in Nazareth. But they would come to Jerusalem for the Passover. In Luke chapter 2, it says every year, every year, his parents went to Jerusalem for the feast of the Passover. When he was 12 years old, they went up to the feast according to the custom. After the feast was over, while his parents were returning home, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, but they were unaware of it. This was an annual event to them, for them, that they would come to Jerusalem, to the temple, which would have been just up on top of this wall, where they would make sacrifices, where they would worship, and where they would pray. Now, as they came to Jerusalem every year, they would often recite psalms. The psalms, the, the, the song book, this prayer book, was very much a part of their life and their faith. And throughout Scripture, there are these psalms that are referred to as the psalms of ascent, like to, to go up. And it was tradition that as they would make the journey to Jerusalem, they would be reciting, singing, praying these psalms as they went up. And especially as they came up to the temple, up to the temple steps, they would be saying these psalms of ascent. One of them is out of Psalm 121. I lift up my eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. He will not let your foot slip. He who watches over you will, ne will not slumber. Indeed, he who watches over Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. Jesus would recite this as a prayer, as a proclamation on his way up to Jerusalem. Or how about this one out of Psalm 122? I rejoiced with those who said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Our feet are standing in your gates, O Jerusalem. Jesus would have come here with his parents all through his life, and then he would bring his disciples here. And on the final time that he would come to Jerusalem for the Passover, there was something he could take no longer. He went into the temple courts, and he threw over the tables, and he drove out the money changers, and he said this, of all the books that he could quote, he quoted Isaiah. Of all the chapters in Isaiah, he quotes Isaiah 56. And he says, it is written, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. Now, I'm getting way ahead of myself, so let's go back to the very beginning. And it was in the temple that Jesus was brought as a little boy to be prayed for by Simeon and Anna from the very beginning of his life, before he took his first steps, before he said his first prayer, before he said his first words. There was prayer as a part of Jesus' life. There was prayer first. You know, one of the mysteries of Jesus is the dual nature that he had, that he was completely God and completely man. It was 100% divine, yet 100% human. And I think we in the church, and rightfully so, we tip those scales heavy on the divinity side. And, and I think that's a good thing. When we worship Jesus, we worship him as God, as our Lord. Uh, when we pray to Jesus, we're praying to him because he is God. When we look at his words, when we follow them, when we are obedient to them, when his word has sway over our life, when we are following him, it's because he is God. And his godness is why we exalt him, it's why he will be exalted for all eternity. But that godness so often overshadows the other reality that he was completely human. And sometimes we forget the fact that God did this self-imposed limitation on himself to become Jesus the man. In Philippians chapter 2 it says that while he was in very nature God, he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but listen to this, but made himself nothing, taking the nature of the servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man. That God, the uncreated one, the eternal one, the only self-sufficient one, creates himself into the story, makes himself nothing, 
makes himself a human being. Now, what's interesting is with Jesus' life, the human side of his life, we don't hear a whole lot for about 30 years. There's the Christmas narrative and all the stories surrounding his birth, but then for the next 30 years, you don't hear a whole lot of anything. And it may be that the reason that not a lot is spoken of those 30 years is that maybe there wasn't a whole lot that was out of the ordinary, nothing necessarily extraordinary, that during those years, Jesus, as the man, just grew up. Now, there is one snapshot, I referred to it in that first video, when he's 12 years old, when he and his parents went to the temple for the fast Passover feast. There's that one snapshot, but other than that, you hear nothing for 30 years. After that little snapshot, when he was 12, there's this little phrase that's found in Luke chapter 2, verse 52. And Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. And I think this verse basically summarizes that Jesus the man, Jesus the human, was just developing. That Jesus grew in wisdom. That Jesus the man had to learn to read, had to learn to write. Now some would disagree with me, but this concept that a seven-year-old Jesus knows all the complexities of quantum physics, to me, you say, well, of course he does, he's God. But he's human. He grew in wisdom. He learned like every other Jewish boy. He grew in stature. That physically, he had growth spurts, he had growing pains, he hit puberty, his voice changed, he got facial hair, he grew in stature, he grew in favor with God that spiritually he developed as well. In this, in this Jewish household, going to the synagogue, learning the Torah, he grew spiritually and in favor with God and with men. That so socially and relationally, he matured as well. I think what you see in this 30 years of summarized in this is that Jesus would mature Jesus, the man, would grow up. Jesus did grow up all through his teenage years, through his 20s, and then about the time he was 30, he heard about his relative, his cousin, John. We know him as John the Baptist. He gets that name because he was baptizing people in the Jordan River. And where he was baptizing people is just to the east of here. And Jesus, the scripture says, went to him to be baptized. In Matthew chapter 3, it says, as soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was open, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting on him. And a voice from heaven that said, this is my son whom I love. With him, I am well pleased. Then it says in chapter four, then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the desert or into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After 40 days fasting and 40 nights, he was hungry. There's not a lot said about what happened during those 40 days and 40 nights, just that Jesus was fasting, and we know that fasting and prayer go together, and that he was tempted. Again, there's not a lot about the temptation. There were three of them. In the first two, the devil started off with this phrase, if you are the Son of God, if you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. If you are the Son of God, jump off and see if God's angels will save you. And then the third temptation, he said, if you'll just bow down and worship me, then I will give you all the kingdoms of this world. And Jesus came to this desert, to this wilderness, alone. In the third week of this series, Pastor Kip was preaching. And he talked about how solitude, solitude is essential to encounter God. And Jesus was alone with God. And maybe it was that verse out of, out of the Psalms that says, be still and know that I am God. There's not a lot to do if you're out here for 40 days and 40 nights. To be still and to know God. Maybe this is where Jesus recognized God as his rock. God is his fortress. God is his stronghold. And during these times out here alone, quietly in the desert, in the wilderness, maybe he would go back to those scriptures that the psalmist wrote out of Psalm 42. As the deer pants for streams of water. So my soul pants for you, my God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. And then it says, my tears have been my food day and night. That he's thirsting for God, he's hungering for God, he's crying out to God. Maybe he goes back to the Psalm that, that the Psalmist David wrote when he was on, on the run from Saul and he was in the Judean wilderness. When he writes in Psalm 63, oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My body longs for you. In a dry and weary land where there is no water. 
I have seen you in the sanctuary and beheld your power and your glory because your love is better than life. My lips will glorify you. I will praise you as long as I live and in your name I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with the richest of foods. With singing lips my mouth will praise you. While his body was hungering, he said his soul was being satisfied, being fed with the richest of foods. And his lips, dry, parched, cracked, still his lips would sing praise to his God. What was he praying about for these 40 days while he was in the wilderness? We don't know. Maybe it was for strength to withstand the temptation that the enemy would put on him. Maybe, and there are scholars that would disagree with this, maybe it was during these 40 days that Jesus came to really fully understand who he was. Now we know that he was completely God and completely man, but when did he know as a man, when did he know that he had his divinity? Was it when he was born? Was it when he was 12? Was it when he was 20? Or could it have been during these times? Because it was the voice of God when he was baptized that said, this is my son with whom I am well pleased, I love. And it's interesting that the enemy would come to him with this question, if you are the Son of God. And maybe it was during these 40 days that for the first time there was complete clarity of his identity that yes, he was a man, but that he is the Son of God. And maybe it was during these 40 days of prayer and fasting that he began to understand what it was that God was calling him to, his whole purpose for being here, his mission, the reason that he was here as the Son of God, as the Son of Man. Because three years later, he would pray in John 17, that high priestly prayer, and he would pray these words, I have brought you glory on earth by completing the work you gave to me. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. At this point, there's no question. He knows who he is. He knows that all of the glory of heaven and of the whole universe was his before the world began. And there's no question about why he came. He's completed the work that God had given to him. During this time of prayer and fasting, he prayed for strength and God saw him through. Maybe it was this time that he got clarity, understanding of who he was, understanding of why he came. But this we do know is that all through all of it, he wanted to glorify God. He knew that before he would ever start his ministry, he would pray first. In Peter Scazzaro's book, uh, The Emotionally Healthy Leader, he writes this. Jesus spent over 90% of his life, 30 of his 33 years, in obscurity. In those hidden years, he forged a life of loving union with the Father. The observable greatness of his three-year ministry is built on the foundation of the investment Jesus made in those unseen years. In those 30 years as he was growing in favor with God, as he was developing this relationship with his Father, culminating in those 40 days of prayer and fasting, we see that Jesus prioritized the inner life, that it wasn't just the things that he did, it was who he was and who he was in God and who he was with God. Because before Jesus ever preached a sermon, before he ever told a parable, before he ever healed a blind man or caused a lame man to walk or, or performed any miracle, before he ever raised anyone from the dead, the father said, this is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Not because of anything he's done, but because of who he is, because of our relationship, because we've connected, because Jesus understood how prayer would connect him with the father. So he goes and he prays and he fasts for 40 days. And following that 40 days, he goes back home where he was raised. He goes back to Nazareth. And scripture says when he went back home, he went on the Sabbath, he went to the synagogue as was his custom. Just as you're here today, and for many of you, this is a part of your weekly rhythm to join with God's people, to worship the Father, to look at the words of, of Scripture. Jesus, every week, would go to the synagogue, as was his custom. And he goes in that week, he's handed the scroll of Isaiah, and he opens to what we would know as Isaiah 61, and he would read those words, the Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is upon me. He has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners. You know, recovery of sight for the blind 
and, and release for the oppressed to, to declare the, the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolls up the scroll, he puts it back, and he sits down and he says to them, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Now what's interesting is some people were absolutely amazed. This is Jesus. He grew up here. They knew him. He's a carpenter's son. He, he had learned the family trade. They had, they had seen him as a little boy. And now he speaks with such great authority. But as he continues to expound on what he's read, their enthusiasm towards his teaching becomes outrage. So much so that they drive him out of the city, take him to the pre precipice of a cliff, and want to throw him off the cliff. He's no longer welcome in his own hometown. And Matthew records that at that point, there was a change of geography. Matthew chapter 4 says, Leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum, which was by the lake in the area of Zebulun and Naphtali, to fulfill what was said through the prophet Isaiah. And then he, he quotes Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 and 2. Land of Zebulun and land of Naphtali, the way to the sea along the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people living in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. Now this verse for some of you is familiar. It's often quoted around Christmas about this light that comes into a dark world. But the rest of that passage, for some of you, is like, yeah, the Naphtali, Zebulun thing, yeah, I don't have a clue what he's talking about, but let's get to the light part. Let me just for a moment explain this so you understand it in the context with a map. This is a map of, of northern Israel. Here's the Mediterranean Sea. This is the Sea of Galilee. And there are these uh, different colors here. From your Old Testament history, some of you will remember, when the Israelites were brought into the promised land, there were the sons of Jacob. Jacob's name was changed to Israel. He had 12 sons, which by and large became the 12 tribes of Israel, okay? And when they came into the promised land, they divided up the land so each of the tribes, each of the clans could have a territory. Save the Levites, the, the Levitical tribe were the priestly tribe. They didn't get land. All the brothers would take care of them. And Joseph, his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. So I'm giving you way too much detail. So these are the regions of these different sons of Jacob. One of his sons is Zebulun, and the other one is Naphtali. And these are the regions. When it says from the land of, the, of Zebulun and Naphtali, Nazareth and Capernaum are in this area. And Jesus grew up in Nazareth. Nazareth is up in the hill country about 1,100 feet above sea level. And he leaves there and goes, it says, the way to the sea, the Via Maris. This was the main trading route that would go down through the Valley of the Doves and dump out right in here in the Sea of Galilee by Magdala. And he went there to Capernaum. This is now 700 feet below sea level. He travels down, and this is where he goes. Now, I just wanted you to understand that in context so that maybe that verse makes more sense to you. Since it was written 2,700 years ago, it's about time you learn what it means. All right. So, so Matthew says Jesus left Nazareth, leaving Nazareth. He went and he lived in Capernaum. Capernaum is a town in Galilee. Galilee is a region. It's in the northwest corner of the Sea of Galilee with a lot of different towns. And just a few miles from here, an easy walk from here, is where Capernaum was. And Jesus spent most of his time in Capernaum. He was born in Bethlehem. He was raised in Nazareth. He visited Jerusalem. But as an adult, he lived in Capernaum. Most of his disciples were from the Galilee area. Most of his miracles happened right here. And the Gospel writers point out that in his time in Capernaum, in his adult ministry, that Jesus not only had a prayer life, he had a life of prayer. Not far from here, a, a few hundred yards, is where they believe that Jesus turned the fish and the loaves into an all-you-could-eat feast for 5,000 men as well as women and children. In Matthew's Gospel, it says that just after he had fed the 5,000 people that he dismissed the crowds and he went up into the hills to pray. And Luke talks about as his popularity grew and people were coming and bringing their sick to be healed and to listen to Jesus, that Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. In Mark's gospel, after an extended time of, of ministry in Capernaum, it, it says that, that very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. You see this over and over again, that Jesus would intentionally carve out time, not just conversational prayer throughout the day, which is great, but specific time 
to get away to connect with his father. Now where that happened exactly we don't know, but it may have been a place just like this, on a hill just up from the Sea of Galilee, maybe in a little alcove where he could gather, where he could get away from the crowds and be alone, where he could leave the noise of all of the busyness of ministry and life and just listen. And maybe it would be in a morning like this, as the eastern sky started to turn pale and then began to come pink and then the sun would rise, that he would come and spend some time alone and pray. Maybe in those times he would remember just the writings of scripture that talk about the faithfulness of God. As the sun comes up day after day, every day, God's mercies are brand new. His faithfulness is great. As we mentioned, the Psalms were a big part of the prayer life in, in Judaism. And maybe he would pray Psalm 5 where it says, Give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my sign. Listen to my cry for help, my King and my God. For to you I pray, in the morning, O Lord, you hear my voice. In the morning, I lay my request before you and wait in expectation. And maybe it was a place like this that he would get up before it was, before it was light and he would come here to be alone to lay his request before the Father. But it wasn't just at the morning. The Bible also talks about him coming out to be alone in the evening. Luke says in Luke chapter 6, verse 12, one of those days, Jesus went out to a hillside to pray and spent the night praying to God. And maybe in a little cave-like setting like this, possibly there's a little fire to keep him warm, maybe brought a blanket to keep him warm throughout the night, that he would pray throughout the evening. As he would lift up his, his request to God, as he would connect with God, as he would worship God. And maybe he would again use the Psalms as, as the western sky grew darker and darker, and then the stars would come out. And maybe he would say something like Psalm 8, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You set your glory above the heavens. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him? the Son of Man, that you care for Him. That as Jesus would stand out here looking out underneath these, these stars, maybe He would remember and call to mind Psalm 19. It says, The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of His hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they display knowledge. There is no speech or language where their voice is not heard. Their voice goes out into all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. See, I think it may have been at a place like this that Jesus would frequently come to spend time alone in worship with the Word of God, connecting with His Father. Psalm 113 says, From the rising of the sun to the place where it sets, may the name of the Lord be praised. And that maybe here there were multiple sunrises and sunsets and all-night prayer vigils where Jesus would pray. In Psalm 119, it says, I rise before dawn and cry for help. I have put my hope in your Word. My eyes stay open through the watches of the night that I may meditate on your promises. So I think it was in times like this that Jesus would connect with God to get wisdom, to recall his words, and to just worship him. Jesus would come again and again and again, intentionally carving out time to spend with the Father. Because Jesus didn't just have a prayer life. He had a life of prayer. And over those three years of his public ministry, prayer wasn't just something that he did. It was woven throughout everything that he did. And in those three years, he would teach on prayer. He would teach the parables of prayer. He would teach about, about the widow and the unjust judge and talk to us about how our relationship with our Heavenly Father is not like that, but we can come and pray. He would tell the, the story of the, of the persistent neighbor that would keep coming back and asking to teach us to persevere in prayer. He would tell the story contrasting the Pharisee and the tax collector about humility before God in prayer. He would teach his disciples the Lord's Prayer. He would teach them to ask and they would find seek and they ask and they would receive seek and they'd find knock and the door would be open to them. He would talk a lot about prayer. But it wasn't just talking about prayer. In those times, there would be things that he would do. The miracles, the healings, the ministry that he would he would. He would uh, perform with the people. And in John's gospel, let me remind you, at the end of God, John's gospel, he said that the, the gospels record some of what Jesus did, but if we were to write down everything that Jesus did, there would not be enough books on the, on the planet to contain them all. He did all of this. 
And what you see is that as he's ministering in this public ministry for those three years, everything that he's doing for the Father flows from being with the Father. And this is such a great insight for us, that the things that he did, the work for God's glory, the work for the kingdom, wasn't something he did out of his own strength. It flowed out of just being with the Father. It's just spending that time with the Father. That's why you see that over and over again, day after day, morning after morning, night after night, he would withdraw, find solitude, connect with his heavenly Father in prayer. And he does this for three years all throughout. And then in that final trip to Jerusalem for that final Passover, as he comes into Jerusalem on that Palm Sunday when he leaves Bethphage and comes down the Mount of Olives into, the, into uh, Jerusalem, and they're laying down the palm branches in their, in their robes and their coats and saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And he comes in, and then that week they go to the upper room to celebrate the Passover. And in that upper room, there he is with his disciples as he is eagerly desired to have this meal with them. And he does the unthinkable when he washes their feet and he says to them now that i your lord and master have washed your feet so you should wash one another's feet now that you know these things you will be blessed if you do them and he would engage in the passover and during the passover he took the loaf of bread and and he prayed and he thanked god for it and he broke it and he said this this is my body broken for you and he took the cup and he prayed and he thanked god for it he says this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood and he instituted this, this, uh, this practice of communion. Whenever you do this, whenever you eat the bread and drink the cup, do this in remembrance of me, the communion that we take. And not only that, he had interaction with his disciples about how they would deny him, how they would abandon him. And then they sang. And then he prayed. He prayed that high priestly prayer recorded in John 17. And he prays for himself. It's this beautiful uh, glimpse into his conversation with his heavenly father. And his disciples are listening in. And then he turns the attention of his prayer and he prays for his disciples as they are listening in. And then he prays for us. And after he prays this high priestly prayer, John 18 says this. When he had finished praying, Jesus left with his disciples and crossed the Kidron Valley. On the other side, there was an olive grove And he and his disciples went into it. So Jesus and his disciples left Jerusalem after the Lord's Supper, after that that last supper. And they went across the Kidron Valley to the Mount of Olives, where I am right now, in a grove of olive trees in an area called Gethsemane. In Luke's Gospel, he said Jesus went as usual. This was not the first time, it was not the only time that they would leave Jerusalem and come to this garden. They would come here probably frequently over the last three years, several times repeating that. But this time was different. This was the last night. This was the darkest hour of Jesus' life. And the agony and the tension and the struggle that he faced, knowing what he would face, not just in the flogging, not just in the scourging, not just in the crucifixion, but what he would face emotionally and relationally and on the deepest level, spiritually. That the religious leaders, the Pharisees, the ones who are supposed to bring people to God, would be calling out for Jesus to be killed. They would be asking for the death sentence. They would be wanting to murder him. And not only that, the people, the people that he loved, that he had taught, that he had healed, that he had fed, that they would be screaming together, crucify him, crucify him. And how about those disciples, the ones that he had poured his life into for three years, the one that just hours before, He had said, how I have eagerly anticipated and longed to share this meal with you. Every single one of his disciples would either betray, deny, or abandon him and leave him alone. And in this dark hour, in this worst night of his life, Jesus does what he has always done, what he's done his entire life. He prays. Matthew records it this way. Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane. The word Gethsemane, Gethsemane, means olive press or oil press, where they would take the olive oils, the olives, and they would press them, they would crush them, and it would bring forth the beautiful oil that they would use. It would be in this place where Jesus would recognize that his life would be crushed. Isaiah said, he is pierced for our transgressions and he was crushed 
for our iniquities. The picture of the olives being crushed to bring about the very best, that Jesus would be crushed to bring about the very best for us. And Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to them, sit here while I go over there and pray. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. And then he said to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell with his face to the ground and he prayed, my father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. In Luke's account of this event, Luke, remember, being a doctor, Luke points out one other detail, that the stress and the anxiety that Jesus was dealing with, the struggle that he was facing, caused a physiological reaction, that his sweat was like drops of blood. The medical term is hematidrosis, when, when capillaries burst and actually produce blood in the sweat. And here Jesus was praying with anguish, great anguish. And again, I wonder, I wonder if he went back to the book of Psalms to find those, those words that had, had been a part of his life his whole life. Maybe out of Psalm 77. I cried out to God for help. I cried out to God to hear me. When I was in distress, I sought the Lord. At night, I stretched out my untiring hands. My soul refused to be comforted. I remembered you, O God, and I groaned. I mused, and my spirit grew faint. You kept my eyes from closing. I was too troubled to speak. I thought about the former days, the years of long ago. I remembered my songs in the night. My heart mused, and my spirit inquired. And then the psalmist just gives this series of questions. Will the Lord reject us forever? Will he never show his favor again? Has his unfailing love vanished forever? Has his promise failed for all times? God, have you forgotten your mercy? Have you withheld your compassion? Or maybe Jesus would recite that psalm that he would, in a few hours, be speaking from the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer. By night, and I am not silent. Yet you are enthroned as a holy one. You are the praise of Israel. In you our fathers put their trust. They trusted, and you delivered them. They cried out to you and were saved. In you they trusted and were not disappointed. A lot about trusting the Father. And at this point, Jesus is wrestling with, do I trust the Father here? I think about another decision that was made in another garden where Adam said, I'm going to go with my will, not God's will. And in this garden, Jesus is wrestling. Is it about my will or is it about God's will? Do I trust him? Do I believe that he knows what's best? Can he be trustworthy in even this kind of an hour? And Matthew goes on to say that Jesus went away a second time and a third time, and he prayed the same thing. You see the wrestling match that he's in. It's not a one-and-done prayer. He continues to go back, and he says, My Father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. It wouldn't be the last prayer of those 24 hours. He would pray, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He would pray that committal prayer, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. But these words, your will be done. The prayer of surrender, the prayer of trust. And I think maybe more than any other prayer that Jesus prayed, this one sets for us the example of how we are to pray. Not my will, but your will be done. This was a time when Jesus came, not as an example, not to teach, but because his heart was crying out, and in his moment of despair, he said, your will be done. God, I trust you. You know, there's a lot we learn from Jesus in this prayer life, but that attitude is maybe what we need to learn the most. Yeah, we come with all of our requests, and we're in invited and we're commanded to, to pour our hearts out, but to come with that open hand saying, but not my will 
your will be done. Earlier we read out of Hebrews chapter 5, verse 7, during the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with loud cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. His reverent submission to the Father. I know in my life, often I display resistance to submission. I want my will to be done. Or maybe there's a, a, a reluctant submission. Okay, God, I, I guess if you say so. But for Jesus, it was a reverent submission. His surrender is based on his trust. His surrender to God, his submission to God, is based on his trust of his heavenly Father. That he would trust that he is good. That he would trust that he is omniscient. That he would trust that he is sovereign. He would trust that God always only wants the very best and that God always only knows the very best and that God always can transform even the worst situation and redeem it for his glory. He trusts that there is nothing good for him outside the will of the Father. And so he surrenders. In that passage out of Philippians 2 that talks about his humanity at the end of there, it says he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross, this surrender, this submission. Therefore, it says, because he was humble, because he was obedient, because he would have this reverent submission to God, because he would say, your will be done. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee would bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue would confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the, of the Father. Why? Because he said, your will be done. It's interesting. He taught that in the Lord's Prayer. Your kingdom come, your will be done. And he models it and he demonstrates it and he surrenders to it, not my will, but yours be done in the garden. In Isaiah 53, the, the passage is known as this prophetic picture of our suffering Savior. And all the way through, it talks about the suffering of Jesus. And again, at the very end in verse 12, it says, Therefore, because of all this suffering, because of his humility, because he reverently submitted to the Father, therefore I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong. Because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors, for he bore the sin of many, and made intercession. He prayed for the transgressors. You know what's amazing to me? Is that this Isaiah 53 prophecy was prophesied 2,700 years ago. 700 years before it ever happened, Isaiah the prophet said, Jesus will pray for the transgressors. What amazes me even more is that 2,700 years ago, this prophecy was made about me and you, the transgressors. That Jesus would pray for us. And it wasn't just fulfilled there in the garden and there on the cross. In Hebrews chapter 7, it talks about how Jesus is now our great high priest in the order of Melchizedek. We don't even have time to go into all that but how he lives forever and how now he has a permanent priesthood. And it says in Hebrews 7, therefore he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. That's us today. That prayer was not just a part of Jesus' life for the 30 years before his ministry. Prayer wasn't just a part of his life for those three years of ministry in public. Prayer wasn't just a part of his life in his darkest hour in the garden and on the cross. Prayer is a part of his life today, and he prays for us. Now, I want to make a statement and ask a question, and this could be seen as guilt-ridden and manipulative, and the last thing I want is for this to put guilt on you or to try to manipulate you. I want this statement and this question to put perspective that it would inspire us. Here's the statement in the question. Jesus lives to pray for me. Will I live a life of prayer to him? Jesus lives. He prays for me today because he's that committed to me.
Well, I commit myself to pursuing, not out of guilt, but out of a response of gratitude and humility, will I pursue a life of prayer to him. You see, today we conclude this series, but this is not the end. This is just the beginning of the emphasis because we believe God has called us as followers of Christ individually, as couples, as families, as small groups, as ministries, that we would be people of prayer, that we would follow the example of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ as a human being who was a prayer. And let me remind you of one more thing, an opportunity that we have before us this week. On Friday, Good Friday, the day when we remember that Jesus gave up everything for us. We're having a prayer vigil here from 6 a.m. to 9 p.m. Each hour on the hour it starts. You don't have to sign up, just show up. If you can't stay a whole hour, if you can stay 15 minutes, 30 minutes, if you want to stay multiple hours, that's fine. And also I want to remind you that you've all been invited on this Friday to join with me, with our pastors, with our elders, in a day of prayer and fasting where we humble ourselves, where we deny ourselves, where we repent and where we cry out to God. And whatever that looks like for you, I'm not going to dictate that. You may give up eating for that day. You may give up a meal. You may give up a portion of your diet. You may give up uh, technology, your phone. I don't know what it is, but that we would humble ourselves and deny ourselves, come before our Lord and cry out to him that next weekend, when we gather with thousands of others, that his name would be lifted high and that people would understand that Jesus Christ came, died, and rose again so that they could have life. Would you join me? as we become people of prayer, to pray and fast. And I'm inviting you to live this out every day of your life, but this coming Friday, collectively, we do this together. Stand as we close in prayer. Jesus, we thank you for the example that you've set to us. You are our authority on life. You are the authority on prayer. And Jesus... You prayed continually. Prayer was woven into every aspect of your life. And may we continue to pursue that. May we be your sons and your daughters who know you better, who glorify you more, who allow you to work in and through us as we pray and connect with you, our Heavenly Father. We pray this in your great name. Amen. Amen. Hey, God bless you. If you'd like prayer this morning, there'll be someone here in the front who'd love to pray with you. Uh, big shout out to Chris Waltner who put those videos together. Chris, thank you so much for that. Amazing work. God bless you. I love you. You're out of here.